Welcome to Vermont Artists and Authors, where we interview great storytellers and artists from the amazing Green Mountain State. This is episode 25. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have with us the acclaimed Vermont author, Dan Choderkoff. Dan. Great to be here, Barney. Thanks very much for the opportunity. You just had your, your, your book come out. We're here to chat about Sugaring Down that was just yeah. recently released. Yeah, yeah, that's my new novel. Yeah, but this isn't your first novel. You've also had, this is your second book. It is. Third. It is. Okay. Um, uh, well, it's my third book, but my second novel. Okay. The first was uh, called Low East Sida, and it was about New York's Lower East Side, an uh, anarchist activist living in a squatted building there who had a grandmother who was active in the anarchist movement around the turn of the century on the Lower East Side. So it's a, another historical kind of novel based in the 1980s when the Lower East Side was undergoing gentrification. And, right. Yeah. And, do you, and so do you, uh, so I'm curious because I've been uh, doing some research and, and, and reading more about your, your novel, uh, Sugaring Down, that just came out. People will be asking you questions like, this kind of sounds like a memoir. And your response is, you know, you, you, the main characters, David and Jill, and you're, you've always been very firm and say, I'm not, it's, David is not me. These are basically, I've seen experiences and, you know, just observation experiences that you've put sure. into a novelization. We, we do it, we dive into the book, but do you want to give people a bit of a background who might not be familiar with your work on? Certainly. Uh, well, I guess what's relevant is that I first came to Vermont in 1967 as a college student, and I lived in a number of uh, communal households and one short-lived final sort of formal commune. And uh, I was active politically in the anti-war movement during that period, as a lot of people were. I was really drawn to Vermont by the the ethos of self-reliance and tolerance and uh, the kind of approach to directly democratic governance embodied in the town meeting and all of that uh, really attracted me as well as, of course, the, the natural environment of Vermont, beautiful place. So I really re relocated up here at that point. I did spend a number of years in New York City when I was doing my PhD in cultural anthropology. That was when I did some work on the Lower East Side that really inspired and informed my first novel. Anyway, uh, Sugaring Down was an opportunity for me to reflect on some of my experiences and delve into some of the history of Vermont that is perhaps less known, but I think very important and significant, and to tell what I hope is an engaging story for folks to, to get some information from, but mostly hope that it resonates uh, emotionally with people. Right. And how much, as you're writing, as you were writing this, how much did you see this as a kind of also like a nostalgia trip for you as well? Uh, well, it was certainly a reflection on history and some of my personal history and a, ref a chance to reflect on some of the lessons that I learned from those political movements at that time. Uh, but not so much a nostalgia trip. I mean, I think with whatever I write, I try to find a way to present ideas that I think are relevant to today. And I certainly think some of the themes explored in Sugaring Down still have relevance. Mm. And so how, what did you see with, uh, as you're writing the book, did you have to, as you mentioned, is trying to create some 
similarities or just uh, some re relational pieces to uh, what's happening today. Do you, did you have to tweak any of the storylines to more effect for that? Uh, no, I really didn't. I, th I think that, you know, some of the themes explored are timeless questions of mm. social change. How do you bring about real lasting social and cultural change? Uh, is there a role for violence in that process? Uh, you know, this is, I think, particularly relevant, though now in the, you know, back in the 60s where the book is taking place, uh, the, the violence was coming from the left. And now, of course, we're seeing the violence coming from the right. But I still think it's an important issue to explore. So, yeah, not so much nostalgia for me, though, though I have to say I did, you know, dig through a lot of my old papers and look at a lot of old pictures and go through archives and all of that. And that was it was kind of fun. And there was an element of nostalgia in that. <laughs> and and so as, as you were writing this, were you are you more of a through this process? Did you reach out to some old colleagues and friends and say, hey, what are some of the things where you're taking any uh, any anecdotes and, and, and memories of your friends and colleagues that you're able to utilize in the story? Yeah, no, I have to say I, I, I drew on my own experiences okay. and memories primarily, but I did have a lot of uh, a lot of help with the book. You know, a couple of people read various the manuscript at various ages and made suggestions, and that was all really useful, really helpful. Right, but. Yeah. Well, the funny thing about the book is that I actually found to make some of the situations uh, believable, I sort of had to tone things down a little. They were, yeah. they were pretty wild times in Vermont. There was a lot. Yeah. The book itself is over 400 pages. And I remember, you know, seeing in one of your interviews, you're sort of encouraged by editors to trim it down, but you didn't yeah. want to? No, my editors suggested I trim it down, but... Uh, you know, there is there's an extended sequence where David, one of the main characters, spends a winter alone in a house in Vermont and is cutting firewood every day and just really struggling to survive. And I sort of wanted the pace of the book to reflect what that experience felt like, right. to try to give the reader a sense of the place and the time and the pace of life and all of that. So I, I resisted and uh, my editor was very kind and ultimately let me do what I wanted to do with the book. Uh, the reader will have to judge whether I was right or wrong in taking that approach. <laughs> and, and do you see, cause um, your first novel came out, I think it was in 2011. Yeah. And this one now uh, it's, what did you, what did you see as a, as a writer that you, lessons learned that you had as a, as a first-time author and writing fiction on that one that you were able to kind of carry over that you're glad you learned about um, yeah. this one well I, you know it, it's hard to to pin things down i learned a lot through that process i absorbed a lot of lessons through working with my my editor on that first book uh it was a very different book it had an omniscient narrator it uh, changed points of view multiple times it was in in some ways a more a harder story to write uh this is more of a straight narrative it's first person uh you know as i said i was able to draw on my direct experience a lot in writing this book right but it was uh for me i think one of the biggest lessons that i learned writing the first book was patience uh, that to actually 
complete a novel and to feel good about it, I found that I, maybe this isn't true for everyone, but for me, I have to go through multiple uh, iterations, multiple drafts. I, you know, I've probably gone through and changed the manuscript for sugaring down 20, 30 times in the course wow. of writing. Uh, maybe not that much, but, but a lot. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So, so that was an important lesson for me. And uh, I think I also, uh, I, I think I learned how to delve more into people's internal lives of, mm. in this book. That was something that I wanted to do. It's, right. It, was it almost, as you say, it's kind of like you're using a lot of your reflections of your own personal experiences. Was there any, anything you gleaned or anything that you discovered about your own past that you seem to have had like some sort of epiphany about as you're writing this? Uh, I wouldn't say an epiphany, I, I, but I think it, it certainly did reinforce a lot of my understandings of, of what we did wrong in those days and what we did right. And it was an interesting experience, but I'd, I'd been, you know, both from an academic perspective and from a personal perspective, I'd been exploring that terrain quite a bit before. So I'd already reached a lot of conclusions uh, I wouldn't say that the book, writing the book altered any of them. Mm. When did you start? When was the first time pencil to paper that when you started drafting this to when it was published? Pencil to paper. Um, well, I, I had a collection of essays come out in between. So it was really after those essays came out, which was, I think were was 2014. Yeah, okay, 2014, yeah. Uh, it was only after that that I really started thinking seriously about this book. So I'd had some ideas and a sort of very rough framework that I wanted to explore in mind right. long before. But pencil to paper, it would have been 2015 or so. Yeah. Okay. So I, I take a long time to write. I'm, I'm not a disciplined writer. I'm not one of those people who sits down and carves out three or four hours every day. I really write when the spirit moves me and when I feel uh, inspired and when other things aren't going on in my life that take precedence. So right. uh, I have that luxury because I'm an old retired guy. You know? yeah. it's nice. right. What would be your advice to, uh, to people who want to write a book, but are really, a, are really kind of like feel a little daunted by, the actual process. What would be your recommendation to that? Well, it's a it's a, it is a daunting process, and I wouldn't minimize that. Right. And I don't want to sound glib here, but actually, I just read this somewhere today that someone else was asked that same question, and I I've always given the same answer that he gave, which is the hardest part is to get your ass in a chair and sit down and put words on paper, and that's what you have to do. Right. You have to start, and and then you have to continue. And it really is, you know, it's it's a creative and exciting process that once you get going, at least for me, once I get going, it sort of takes on a life of its own. And, you know, periodically I, I will work very intensely, you know, not two or three hours a day, but five or six hours a day for an extended period of time. But it's, uh, it is, it's a discipline and it's a practice and it requires that you carve out some space and get your ass in a chair and put pencil to paper. It's, it's a, it's a solitary profession in a way, but when do you, 
work with the value of a, a writing community? At what point in the process do you begin to interact with other writers and garnering feedback? Yeah, I think uh, a writing community is valuable at any point in the process. Uh, both of my books. Uh, I was involved in a writers group when I started Lowy Sida, and actually the earliest parts of that book came out of the writers group. And there was a writers group uh, at a point where I was really just sort of gathering ideas for sugaring down. That mm -hmm. was also very useful. Right. The nice thing about a writers group is that it sort of imposes that discipline on you. Because if you know you have a meeting every week and you're expected to have something to present, it's uh, highly motivating, at least for me. I don't like to let other people down. And would, And so when... So when you got your book, when you kind of got your, your book ready, um, as we were talking before we went on the air, you, you connected with, you connected with Fomite Press? I did. I did. Uh, it was interesting because I, I was one of Fomite's first authors. When I, I had already completed and I was at a party uh, First, the, the editor of Grey Wolf Press, who was visiting Montpelier. And I ran into Mark Estrin there, who I had known through Goddard. And I knew that he was a successful novelist. And I asked him if he would read my manuscript. And he was very gracious and said yes. And he took it and he read it. And I didn't hear from him for a couple of years or, well, maybe not that long, but for a year or so. And then he called me up and he said, uh, hey, I'm starting a press. And I really like your book, and I'd like to publish it. So that was how I got started there. And uh, I, I also have to say that, you know, I had tried to place the book before uh, going the sort of traditional route. If you want a commercial publisher, you have to have an agent. So I submitted to agents and, uh, you know, got some encouragement, but nobody wanted to take it on. Mm. It's a kind of a quirky book. It's a political novel. Right. Not a huge market for something like that. But Mark really liked it, and uh, he's committed to publishing quality literary works, and he doesn't seem to care a whole lot whether they sell a lot or not. So he took me on. Was there anything that you put in that book that your beta readers or your people read? It's like, ah, Dan, no, this, is, this does not fit, but you just kept pushing like it. I really like this in here, and... Was there anything in there that just never made the final cut that you you kind uh, of decide that you maybe you'll throw in something, put it somewhere later? I I, I uh, pretty successful. Well, I I have to say, you know, my Mark and besides being my publisher, also edited the book, and he takes he's got a very keen eye, and I I tended to take most of his suggestions seriously. So there's a lot that was in there that's not in there, and some things that were in there that are changed. <clears throat> we had uh, lots of discussion about the ending of the book and went back and forth. And I, I wrote multiple endings and finally ended up uh, with the one that I'd originally written. So. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> because you've had such an amazing career in, you know, uh, social ecology and being in, in a lot of your, your activist work, what made you decide to write a fiction book instead of, Utilize, you know, you're taking apart, taking on pieces of, as you said, some of your own history and observations. Um, was there ever a thought about making a memoir instead of this? Uh, not really. Uh, no. You know, I mean, I've, I've written 
uh, academic articles, dissertations, stuff like that. And I just found that it reached a very limited audience. Mm. And as an anthropologist, you know, when you write an ethnography, you're basically telling a story anyway. So I guess I've always been inclined towards storytelling. And it seemed to me that, you know, these were important ideas and to get a broader audience for them, they need to be presented in a more accessible and enjoyable form. So right. for me, fiction was a natural direction to go. What were some of the messages that, that you hope the reader can come away from after reading Sugar and Dough? Well, I think the major theme uh, that I explore here revolves around what happened to the anti-war movement in the late 60s. When, you know, at that point, there was the Students for Democratic Society was an organization that had chapters in over 300 universities, colleges around the country, over 300,000 active members. It was a powerful it was part of a larger movement for social justice and opposition to the war that was really uh, gaining ground with the American public and, and was, I think, well on the way towards changing our society in pretty basic ways. And over a course of a couple of years, because of sectarianism within the organization and sort of certain adventurous tendencies, uh, the movement turned in part, uh, it was a small minority, but large enough to have a very destructive impact, uh, part of the movement turned towards violence, turned towards uh, you know, what could be seen, I, certainly we didn't see it those days, but in today's terms would have been termed terrorism. Right. Uh, and it had a very destructive effect on both the individuals who were involved and more importantly on the movement. And it really led to the complete dissolution of that energy and I think led directly into the kind of reactionary period that we saw with uh, Ronald Reagan and all that came after. So that, that was a major theme and that's something I'd like people to come away with. The other uh, major theme was an exploration of the natural world and appreciation of nature and uh, trying to understand what it means to have a sense of place what kinds of obligations that involves, both to the natural world and to your neighbors and all of that. And I wanted to, uh, I wanted to look at the counterculture and the whole communal impulse and uh, how fragile that was, but at the same time, how important and in many ways, how fulfilling it was. So. Right. And do you see, as you said, because you you were there, like on right, you know, in the front row of the societal evolution of Vermont in the '60s. Do do you also feel as though being there while that happened, there's a sense of a sense of responsibility to kind of tell that story as well to make sure that it's not forgotten about that that cultural shift that happened in Vermont. Yeah, yeah absolutely, and that's something else that the book explores. It, the, Sort of relationship between the new Vermonters, the back to the landers, the hippies, so-called, mm -hmm. and the old Vermonters, and and it was a complex relationship. You know, it was on the one hand, a lot of people were very welcoming and helpful, and and there are characters that portray that in the book, and there was also a lot of hostility, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, fear of difference, and and a lot of racism, and you know, Vermont's a complex place. I mean, it's not all Vermont life views and bucolic village life. There are 
contradictions here, and there's also a, a history that the book explored. I, I look at the eugenics movement. I look at uh, look at the Underground Railroad in Vermont. There's a section that talks about the Barry Anarchist movement. Uh, there's a, a very rich history here that's you know both good and bad, but needs to be understood if we're really to find a, our place here. This takes place in a pretty finite time. I think it's what only a span of like two years or three yeah. years. Yeah, two years. Was that a artificial reason to, to make sure you tell a story within those the two years, or is it just naturally the story just seemed to happen in two years? I sort of wanted to bookend the story. I wanted it to have a beginning and an end, and the end has some ambiguity to it. So in a certain sense, the story goes on. We just don't know where it goes. From, not maybe this is an anthropologist hat. Maybe it's a writer's hat. An artist who just kind of like is observant. Do you see, as you talk around the sixties, the old Vermont to the new Vermont, and now is the new Vermont in the sixties now the old Vermont? Was there a new Vermont, <laughs> a new Vermont culture, and evolve like a like a more of a evolved ideologies? happening in Vermont and do you and if so do you feel yourself being now a part of the old Vermont culture from the 60s I, I, I feel very old uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think there is still that tension between more traditional eighth generation Vermonters mm-hmm. and, and you know I mean my kids were born in Vermont but you know the old adage they that Vermonters like to say if the cow crawls into the barn to have kittens that don't make them cows. <laughs> Cat crawls into the barn to have kittens, yeah, obviously. So, uh, yeah, I do feel that I'm a part of that old old Vermont. It was interesting because I was invited to the Historical Society a couple years ago, and they, spent, they did a year-long sort of exploration of the 70s in Vermont, and it was interesting to be a a part of a historical inquiry, you know. <laughs> but Vermont, I mean, it's changed tremendously since I first came up here. And I do feel that a lot of what we did in the 60s really influenced the direction of that change. And, you know, it culminates in Vermont moving from being a rock rib Republican bastion to the most liberal state in the U.S. So. Right. What are some of the other responsibilities that you feel or one of some of the other stories that you feel as though that you're best to tell? That's a good question. And, uh, you know, I guess that's what I'm trying to figure out right now with this next book, because it doesn't have a story yet. It just has some anecdotes and some reflections. So I've got to find that story, the challenge. How, how much of that style of... of of being a professor kind of infiltrated your style as an author as well? Um, you know, probably a little too much. Uh, <laughs> and I, you know, I think it, it's, it's easy to, for me to be didactic and, and wordy and, and sort of uh, act overly academic. And sometimes that's reflected in writing that comes out a, a little stiff. So I've, I've really tried to be aware of that and tried to address it. I don't know how much success I've had. Right. What do you do when an idea hits you? Or like, as you mentioned, that you write in fits and starts. So do you have 
you you so you longhand out like your is that the first draft is longhand or that's just like yeah longhand. Then so how do you, that's amazing. So you have a stack because you're talking it was four, over four hundred pages. Did you have like I had a stack, a stack of yellow, yellow pads? Yeah, yeah, pretty good stack. <laughs> but you know, I find transcribing the yellow pads to the computer is that's really my first full edit of the book. And it changes dramatically uh, wow. in that process. So that's that's a, I guess the one method that I've developed that works for me. Right, right. Yeah. That's like the equivalent of the artist who has that first sketch of the of the painting they do. So and then, well, we'll just just we'll donate it to the Smithsonian. How about see? That? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> the, the local historical society say this is where. This is the this is the first draft of sugaring down right there. Yeah. What are the some of the things that you learned from this past book that you're implementing in uh, yeah. your your new book? I'm not sure how it'll be implemented in the new book. Really, <laughs> these are just very reminiscences, and and I guess one thing that I am consciously trying to do, even at this stage, though, is to be more lyrical in the writing to address that stiffness that I mentioned earlier right and to try to be uh, I don't know if I'd say poetic more lyrical is the way right. yeah your first novel um Louisada is that you said? Loisida Loisida Hispanicization of Lower East Side so oh okay right um, yeah. so is does this take place in the same the literature world of sugaring down? Yeah, I would say it does. It's it's a political novel also. It's about really tracing the history of an idea in a place and how it gets played out in contemporary times and how that both uh, ties into and contradicts sort of earlier iterations of the idea. So they're both, I think, you know, if we're looking for a genre... Uh, they're, they're both oddballs. They don't fit into any kind of real uh, existing genre in popular literature. But there is kind of a subgenre, I'd say, out there that's pretty marginal uh, that I'd call, you know, political literary fiction. Okay. And that's where, I, at least where I would like to see the books uh, categorized. Is that something that Mark, your friend, also kind of helped you kind of like categorize, calling it... Uh... No. <laughs> no. <laughs> How from a from a marketing perspective, what would be some of your advice for someone that wants to make sure the book is known? Uh that's a really tough question. And I can only tell you what Mark, my publisher, told me. I asked him that question when, when Louis Sida first came out. So how are we gonna sell the book, Mark? Uh I said, uh, we're going to play some ads. <laughs> well, we placed an ad, but he said, ads don't sell books. We, we placed an ad. Yeah. Uh, I said, well, I, you know, I'll go out on the road and I'll do readings. And he said, good, but readings don't sell books. <laughs> and then I said, um, well, you know, we'll get some reviews. We'll get some reviews, right? He said, yeah, get reviews. So we got reviews, got some good reviews. Right. Uh, and he said, reviews don't sell books unless it's the front page of the New York Times book review. 
So I said, so how do we sell books, Mark? <laughs> so the internet. The internet. Yeah. Social media and all of that. And that's something that I'm no good at and that I don't do. Mm. And as a result, I uh, haven't sold a lot of books. But you're supposed to have an author's web page. You're supposed to have an Instagram account. You're supposed to have, I don't know what else is in the, right. in the social media world. And you've got to promote your book. And then that becomes, seemed to me like that became a full-time job. And it right. wasn't a job that I had the heart for personally. Um, but I think that's the advice I would give. If you really want to get your book out there, you have to create a presence online. Mm. You have to get a good platform going where you get lots of followers or likes or whatever it is they do. Right. I'm I'm pretty much computer illiterate, so that leaves me out. If there's anybody out there who wants to take it on and help establish a social media presence for me, get in touch. I'd love yeah. to talk to you. <laughs> and do you see and so but isn't it part and parcel what you reached out to uh Rootstock as well to help out with that Pete? Yeah, yeah. But they don't do social media. I mean, they sent out some press releases. They contacted bookstores, and they did an excellent job for me. That was great. Do you see this as well as a a quintessential Vermont novel in the sense that if somebody read this from, say, Arizona, that they would they would read your novel, and then if they ever visited visited Vermont, you're like, this is exactly how Dan described Vermont. I don't know if it's quintessential, but I think it is very much a Vermont novel. Vermont has had a tremendous impact on me. And and one of the things I really wanted to do with the book was try to communicate a sense of place and a sense of the, the real reverence that I feel for Vermont and the natural environment and the people and everything it's represented in my life. So, I, yeah, I tried to put that into the book. And I would hope that someone, though certainly, you know, it's depicting an era that's long gone in Vermont. I mean, back when there were still little hill farms and a lot of community stuff that's changed dramatically. But I think the landscape is still largely the same. And the spirit the book tries to embody is largely the same. So. Mm. The title Sugaring Down, was that always going to be the title or was that something that kind of evolved? Uh, that was my title from the start. It was something that we had some discussions about uh, with the publisher. You know, sugaring down, of course, is the process, the final process in maple sugaring when the syrup is reduced to maple sugar and it's sort of taken everything down to the essence. And right. that was what I thought was an appropriate title for the book. Right. I think a lot of our listeners and viewers are, are really appreciative of finding another really great historical Vermont fiction book. So, um, so thank you again for coming on and, and listen, Dan, you got to come back on when you have your, when you come out with your other book. Okay. Yeah. yeah it's probably going to be a while, but I'd like to do <laughs> Thanks so much, Barney. I've really enjoyed talking with you. This You're welcome. Great. And and so and people can find your book. They can go to fomitepress.com. And yeah, from um, there. Get it. It's best if they order it through their local bookstore. Fomite okay. doesn't do fulfillment. Uh, you know, Rootstock has, has some copies that they have available. But really, uh, ordering through your local bookstore is probably the best way to go. Thank you very much, Dan. And uh, 
And as I said, come back again. Thanks, Barney. Appreciate it. You take care. Bye.